When I was growing up here in Orlando, my grandparents, my, my dad's parents, uh, lived in Kissimmee on Shingle Creek in, in a home that my grandfather had, had built on that land. My grandfather loved that place. He would refer to it from time to time as, as God's little acre, God's little acre. Uh, when family from, from up north, Missouri, Wisconsin, would say, you know, why don't you come to visit? Or people would say, you know, are you, are you planning to do any traveling? He would always say, no. Why would I live here? I live on God's little acre. Well, being here in Orlando, I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house. I learned to ride a bicycle down their gravel driveway. I learned to ride a motorcycle in the field across the dirt road from the house. I learned to water ski behind my grandfather's boat out in Lake Tehopakaliga at the end of Shingle Creek at the, the east end of the river. Uh, I helped my grandfather out in his garage work on projects. I worked in the garden with him. And all of those things to some degree shaped who I am today and, and may never have happened if not for God's little acre, my, my grandparents' house. Those things are now part of who I am. Places and what we do in those places shape us, mold us, and form us. Now, it, it's also true that humans shape places. I mean, go anywhere in the world and you can see where humans have been. We we build buildings, we build roads, we build dams, we build canals, right? We, we make our mark. My grandfather found this lot and bulldozed it and, and uh, put in a seawall along the river and a boat ramp and, and built the house just the way he wanted it and planted a garden with just the vegetables that he wanted. He shaped that place where he lived. But I would argue that as much as we may shape a place, places shape us. There is something profound about the ways particular places shape the people who live there. Growing up in the South, I learned to say y'all, and sometimes all y'all. Growing up in Central Florida, I didn't realize how flat Florida is until I moved up to North Carolina for seminary where things are a little more hilly and mountainous. Growing up in Orlando, I came to expect that every beach, every coastline runs north and south, and it really threw me when I moved to Tallahassee and discovered that the coastline and the panhandle runs east and west. It just didn't seem right. Think of the places you're from, how that place has shaped you, your outlook, the way you talk, the food you eat, uh, the way you see and interact with the world. I mean, there's just no denying it. Island people are different than, than mainland people, right? Uh, people who live on the coast are, are different than people who live inland. Rural life is very different than big city life. Yankees are way different than southerners. We grow up in different homes, different neighborhoods. We attend different schools. We play in different playgrounds. We attend different 
churches. We attend different universities. We, we hang out in different spaces, and those spaces, to a very large degree, shape who we are. Place shapes us. Place, in many ways, defines us. And to some degree, I think that's true spiritually. There are places that shape who we are and how we understand God. Gustavo Gutierrez, who is a liberation theologian from Peru, writes, human beings believe in God in the context of a particular historical situation. Well, historical situations take place in places. Place is important in the Bible. I mean, just think about how the story begins. God creates the heavens and the earth, but on the earth, God carves out a a particular place, a, a garden, the Garden of Eden. And we were intended to live in that garden forever in close communion with God. Everything was meant to be perfect for us in the garden until Adam and Eve got kicked out. And then that place became the frame of reference. If you just keep reading in the book of Genesis, the people kept moving further and further east, further away from the place that God intended for us. Then it's Genesis chapter 12. We encounter Abraham and Sarah, an old couple, married, but without children. In many ways, nomadic. They, they traveled from place to place when there was water or, or grass for their flocks. They didn't own a land. But, but God appeared to them one day and said, if, if you will be my people, I will be your God. And, and God promised three things to Abraham and Sarah and their descendants. One, God said, I will bless you. That means a lot of things, protection, health, even wealth possibly. Two, God said, I will give you biological descendants. And they would. They would grow to be a populous nation. But third, God said, I will give you a land. And at that time, that land was called Canaan. Genesis 17, 7 through 8 says, I will be your God and your descendants God after you. I will give you and your descendants the land which you are immigrants, the whole land of Canaan as an enduring possession, and I will be their God. Later, God would tell Moses about the land and say, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, a place where you'll enjoy vineyards and and orchards you didn't plant and live in cities that you didn't build, a good land, a pleasing land, and it really was and is. I mean, from a real estate perspective, you don't get much better. There was oceanfront property and riverfront property and lakefront property and and, and mountain views and, and deserts, if you like deserts, and fertile areas for growing great crops. Everything anybody could want. Great opportunities for international business. And God was just gonna give it to them. Take it. It's yours. It's my gift. Who could ask for more? Except there was a problem. Living in the land of Canaan were people called Canaanites. 
And when Israel came along and entered the land, the Canaanites didn't just decide to move out. For Israel to take the land that God was giving them, they had to take it away from the people who lived there. And that introduces two major problems to our story. Two major issues that that lots of people have with religion in general and with the Bible specifically. The first problem is what's going on today and has been for a long time. The, The modern geopolitical issues that plague the Middle East, the conflict between Israel and Palestine, between between modern-day Jews and modern-day Arabs. It seems to be an ongoing conflict without the hope of resolution. But more specifically to our biblical story, if you read the book of Joshua, which is the story of the Israelites entering into and taking the land of Canaan, it's a bloody story. It's a violent story. And there are places, it appears, that God condoned or even ordered the mass killing of many people. Read the book of Joshua and you'll see city after city, tribe after tribe, slaughtered, apparently with God's blessing. There's just nothing I could say this morning that that excuses or justifies the actions of the Israelites or of a God who would order such mass death and destruction. It's quite disturbing if we take these stories literally. The truth is, there's a lot historically about these stories of conquest that we don't really know for sure. But perhaps some of what we do know for sure might help clarify the problems I've mentioned a bit. First, we do know historically that that Israel did enter the land of Canaan to settle it. The question is whether it was an invasion or whether it was more of a, a gradual settling. We know that there likely were battles that happened a lot throughout history and particularly in that part of the world. And we know that that tribes battled tribes and often those events, those battles were, were quite bloody. So likely there is truth to that in these stories. But one thing we do know that in spite of what Joshua seems to want us to believe, Israel didn't decimate all of the Canaanite tribes. The Bible tells us that because in the generations that followed, the Israelite settlers had problem after problem after problem with, you guessed it, Canaanites. Somehow, different Canaanite tribes continued to inhabit the land that supposedly the Israelites had driven them out of. There's one more thing I want to mention, and I hope you'll just stay with me here because this might get a little bit confusing. It's especially important that we remember that these stories, in fact, all of the stories we've been talking about so far in this series, and including these stories of conquest in the book of Joshua, weren't written down for hundreds and hundreds of years. 
the conquest of Canaan or the, or the settling of Canaan probably took place about the 13th century. But we know that most of the Bible wasn't written, the, the Old Testament wasn't written in the form that we have it today until about 700 years later. Think about that. That's more than two times the, the age of our own nation. And during that time, these stories were sometimes written down in, in individual sort of ways, but also were told orally. And so these stories evolved, if you will, matured, took on different character depending on who was telling the story and the context the story was being told. Of particular importance was the time that the story itself was written as we have it today. During a time that we know of as the Babylonian exile. Now, I don't want to get into all of that. We're going to talk about the exile in just a couple of weeks. But, but over the time that, that Israel had lived in the land, from, from the book of Joshua all the way until the Babylonians came and defeated them and took them away as slaves, Israel had become an important nation. They had become powerful. They had become influential. They had become known. They had established Jerusalem as the capital and built a temple there. They had a powerful army, but not as powerful as the Babylonians. During some times in that history, they were quite close to God, and other times they had strayed from being the people God had called them to be. And so during this period of Babylonian exile, many of these stories took on written form that became our Old Testament. Now, I just want you to imagine, as these stories were told and retold, can't you imagine that these foreign enemies, these, these people they did battle with, became more evil and evil with each telling? And can't you imagine that that each battle won became a much more grand victory. That the heroes became more heroic. And that by the time they were writing these stories down, far away from home, defeated by a foreign enemy, that all foreign enemies, that all the enemies Israel had ever had had become particularly evil. You see, the place shapes the story. The place shapes the outlook. Peter Enns, a biblical scholar, said, writing about the past was never simply about understanding the past for its own sake, but about shaping, molding, and creating the past to speak to the present. The Bible looks the way it does because God let his children tell the story. In many ways, the book of Joshua is God's children telling the story the way they want the story to go, that we were the victors. We got rid of all those evil Canaanites. Now more will be said in, in a couple weeks about the, the exile and how that happened and why that happened, and, and much more could be said about the, the, the stories we read about in Joshua of, of conquest. But for our remaining time this morning, I want to focus again on the land, the meaning of the land, the purpose of the land, why God was giving Israel land. And I want to return to the principle with which I started, that, that places shape people. 
Now, oftentimes when we modern Americans think about land, we think in terms of ownership and property rights. We think in terms of boundaries. This land is mine. That land is yours. Now, don't throw your trash in my yard. Don't trespass on my space because this is mine. Cities have boundaries. States have boundaries. Nations have boundaries. Personal property. We build fences to define this is mine. And so so there might be a, a reason we would read the story and assume that this is about ownership. Because that's the way we think. But I want to argue today that that to think of the story of the promised land simply as ownership is missing the real point of the story. God was giving Israel a land so that they could have a place to become Israel. So that they could have a definable space to be God's chosen people and serve their purpose in the world. Well, what was that purpose? Way back in Genesis 12, God said, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name respected and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. All the families of the earth will be blessed by you. That was God's intent from the beginning, that Israel be the kind of people that would be a blessing to all nations. Yes, there's exclusivity to the call that Israel had as God's chosen people, but it was always for the sake of the world. God was going to do something in this land that served all nations. Sometimes we call that land the holy land because God had a holy purpose for it. Israel needed a place, a place to be that blessing for the world. It wasn't going to happen wandering in the desert. It wasn't going to happen as slaves in Egypt. They needed a place, a place they could become the particular kind of covenanted people that God called them to be, a place they could be God's holy nation, a place they could be a blessing to all of the nations. Isaiah dreamed of a day, chapter 2, verse 3, when many nations will say, come let us go up to the Lord's mountain, to the house of Jacob's God, so that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in God's path. The, the, The nations of the world would look to the nation of Israel as a place of blessing. Now we've talked about the purpose of their wandering in the wilderness was was meant to shape and form Israel into the nation that they would become. God gave them a particular set of laws different than the laws of other nations. We know some of them as the Ten Commandments. God gave them a particular way of practicing their religion through the tabernacle, later the temple, through sacrifices. But most importantly, only worshiping one God and not making idols. There were what we call purity codes that showed how they were to to live in relationship with one another, governing all kinds of things from from marriage to how we do contracts to, to what we eat. These were things that were meant to set Israel apart. But more important than all of those, The place was to give them the space 
where they could live in such a unique way that they served as God's own reflection of holiness for the world, where they could practice a way of being just with one another that was unique to the character of God. Every nation that's ever existed on the earth, there have been important people and unimportant people. There have been powerful people and powerless people. Often in every nation, it's the powerful who have the money. It's the ruling class that makes the rules, often at the expense of the the common citizenry, but most costly to those who are most vulnerable, the poor. But that's not how it was to be in Israel. Israel certainly would have powerful people, even wealthy people. But Israel would live its life in such a way that there would be justice for all. And I don't just mean legal justice, but I mean care and concern, fairness for the most vulnerable of society. And you hear that in Scripture, specifically naming the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant people that had no legal standing, who had no protections in society. It was expected that in Israel, they would be taken care of. Now, I do want to mention some unique practices that were, were, were customs in the, the, the nation of Israel. Now, we don't know if these were ever actually practiced, but these were the ideals, and they point to what I'm talking about. Every 50 years, the nation of Israel was to have a jubilee year, And it was intended that in the 50th year, the Jubilee year, all property would return to its original family owner. So it didn't matter what deals had taken place, who had bought property or loaned property. Every 50 years, it went back to the original owner. That means that if I've lost my property, my family will get it back and things will be fair again. Every seven years, farmers were to leave their land fallow. Just, just leave it and let it grow whatever it grows. That's good for the, for the ground, by the way. We know that in agricultural practice. But it also provided an opportunity for the poor to go pick whatever grew wild in those fields. And in fact, even during normal growing years, farmers were told, don't pick everything. Leave margin so that the poor can come and what they called glean. Pick what was remaining from the the vineyard or from the orchard or from the grain fields. It was expected in Israel that every business dealing, every legal proceeding would be done with honesty, truthfulness, fairness, to make sure that the most vulnerable weren't taken advantage of. You see, the land was not primarily about about who got to own the most and who got to grow rich. It was a place to be a unique people, different than anybody else on the earth, different than the Egyptians, different than the Babylonians, different than the Romans. A place to be God's chosen, covenanted, justice-loving people, living holy lives, and ultimately, if they did, being a blessing all the nations of the earth. Well, it's a great idea. And perhaps there were times when when Israel fulfilled that purpose. 
If we're going to be honest, the, the, the ideal of ancient biblical Israel is very different than the secular nation of Israel today. And, and what on earth does a story like this mean for, for people like us? We don't live in Israel. We don't live in the Holy Land. We live in a, in a secular nation. How do we, as God's people, live uniquely as Christians, as followers of Christ, as God's people now, in this time, in this place? We all know there's been attempts throughout history to establish Christian nations, Christian communes, Christian enclaves, and those have had more or less success depending on on what point in history and who was doing it. But for the most part, for you and for me and for most Christians in our nation and the world, we exist as people dispersed. Not in a defined place with all kinds of people who think and act and look just like us. We're dispersed among a secular world where there are conflicting ideas and ideologies and beliefs and practices. And perhaps that's the point. Perhaps beyond the the giving of the land, God's ultimate purpose was to look beyond Israel's borders. And after all, Jesus came, a son of Israel, but sent his disciples, Jews, off into foreign nations. Paul, a good Pharisee, became an evangelist to the Gentiles. And he taught us to be in the world, but not to be of the world. Maybe the question for us as we reflect on the meaning of the holy land, of the promised land, is how do we in our modern world, in our modern context, make the places that we inhabit holy? If we lived in a holy place, it it would shape us, hopefully, to become holy people. But how do we carry that holiness the places we inhabit, making them holy? How do we live our lives in covenanted relationship with God in the places we live in this world and, and move and work in this world? How do we make our homes holy places? How do, how do we make our, our places of work holy places? How, how do we make this church here in downtown Orlando at the intersection of the arts and government and commerce and and politics and power? How do we make this a holy place? How do we make the places we serve holy? If you're in school, how do you make your school desk holy? If you spend time on social media, how do you make your, your social media accounts holy? In a few weeks, how do we make our ballot box for the few moments we stand there holy? Maybe it's not as hard as it seems. Maybe we make those places holy in the same way that Israel was meant to be holy in the promised land. After all, it wasn't the promised land that was holy. It became holy because of what God did in the people while they were there. We don't make these spaces holy through war or invasion or conquering. We make them holy by being faithful in those places to be the people God calls us to be. To be what Jesus said, the the salt of the earth, wherever we are, a light that shines in the darkness. 
We make space holy by living faithfully and justly with concern for the poor wherever we are. We make a place holy by taking good care and caution to consider who we worship, what we worship, what we're treating as idols. We, we make place holy by considering how we influence the world around us and how the world influences us. As I said, it wasn't the holy land that made the people holy. It was God's interaction with the people that made the land the holy land. As I was thinking this week about places that have shaped me, particularly spiritually, I, I couldn't help but think about this place. Many years ago, this place was where my faith came alive. Many years ago, this place is where I heard the call to ministry and had it affirmed. It was standing literally right here in this place that I married my wife, Kelly. We've been married now 30 years. That started right here. Much of what I know to be true spiritually began in this place. And I'm not the only one. I'm sure all of you can think of ways that this place has made an impact on you spiritually. How you've encountered God in this place. How this altar rail, how those pews, how our classrooms sharing life together, worshiping together, serving together, being in relationship with each other has made this a holy place for you and that has made an impact on your life. How does God continue to shape you in this place? And I would invite you to join me in dreaming about how God might use this place in the days and years to come. I don't think God is done using First Church in downtown Orlando as a holy place. What does it mean that God would use this place to make a difference in the world, in the days, the years, the decades, the centuries to come? What if this, at least for us, is God's modern day promised land where we can live faithfully the lives that God has called us to live.